listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, so that's how it's going to be, is it? (laughs) Not Pastor Brian enough for you. Okay, got it. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this morning we're going to be exploring a topic that is well known to us. It's the topic of the glorious grace of God. And when you think of God's grace, it's true that God's grace is nothing short of amazing, which is why it permeates our singing, it permeates our teaching and our preaching. And as beneficial as it is to speak of the grace of God, there is a danger that we face as believers in coming, becoming so familiar with God's grace that we are no longer moved by it. Familiarity, they say, breeds contempt. And soon we can forget How precious that grace appeared to us the hour we first believed. We are, after all, prone to what? Prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. And it's my prayer this morning that as we look at this scripture together, that God would give us a renewed vision of his grace that reignites our sincere, heartfelt, passionate worship of him. And if ever there was a book that could do that for our souls, it is the book of Ephesians. Paul opens up this book by blessing God for his glorious grace. And in verse 3, he begins a 12-verse run-on sentence that doesn't stop until the end of verse 14, a sentence that would make some of you English majors cringe. Our English translations break it up for us into smaller sentences that we might understand it, but in the Greek text, it is comprised of a series of cascading phrases that build one upon the other, like the waves of the ocean pounding the shoreline as the Apostle Paul wrestles and tries to describe the glory of the indescribable God. He tells us of God's sovereign plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, God chose us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgave us, gave us an eternal inheritance, and sealed us as his possession by giving us of his Holy Spirit. And throughout this 12-verse run-on sentence, three times there's interjected a refrain, a chorus you might say, and those words are these, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. Paul wants us to know the full extent of God's character and work and redemption so that we might stand humbled and in awe of the glorious grace of God. And after he puts the period at the end of verse 14, he tells the Ephesian believers that every time he thinks about them, he prays that God through his Holy Spirit would open up the eyes of their hearts in such a way that they might understand all that God's grace has won for them in Christ. So clearly, God's grace, brothers and sisters, is amazing. And this morning... I'd like to ask and answer two questions. The first is this, what makes God's grace so amazing? What is it that makes God's grace so amazing? And number two, for what purpose 
did God pour out his grace upon us? So let's begin with that first question. What is it that makes God's grace so amazing? The answer is this, that grace has radically transformed our lives. Grace has radically transformed our lives. And for us to truly understand that, brothers and sisters, we must remember what we were before Christ rescued us. Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice our condition before Christ saved us. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now that's an odd way to describe our past condition. What does that mean? dead in trespasses and sins. Well, obviously it can't be referring to our physical condition because this morning as I'm looking out at the audience, your vitals are looking pretty good this morning, right? Except for Caleb Sturgis. I, I think he looks pretty dead. Okay, but oh, he was just sleeping. Kidding. What then is Paul referring to? He's describing the spiritual condition of our hearts. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, death at its most basic level means separation. When somebody dies physically, their soul is separated from their body and they are separated relationally from the ones that they once loved. That's why death is so painful for those of us who remain because we are left to deal with the grief of separation. No more relationship. And this idea of separation can be clearly seen in the fall of Adam and Eve God gave them one prohibition, you may eat of every fruit-bearing tree in the garden except the one that stands in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God warned them, if you eat of this tree, what did he say? You will surely die. Dying, you will die, is what the Hebrew means. But when they chose to rebel against God's loving authority and took that fruit and ate it, they didn't immediately kill over, but something fundamentally changed in their hearts. Their relationship with God was severed, and they were sent away from his presence in the Garden of Eden. And what happened to Adam and Eve's relationship with God, Paul in Ephesians 2 describes that as spiritual death. And because of their sin, they plunged the entire human race into that same death. Everyone born after them was born with their fallen spiritual condition. Their relationship with God was broken. The psalmist writes, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. You and I were born into this world kicking and screaming and showing all the signs of life. But there was something wrong on the inside. We had absolutely no relationship with God. We were spiritually dead. But there's more. Being spiritually dead doesn't just mean that we don't have a relationship with God. It also means we don't want a relationship with God. Colossians 1.21 says we were once alienated from God. That's separated, but not just alienated from him. We were hostile towards him. In Romans 5, Paul says Jesus died for us who were his what? His enemies. 
What does this mean? It means this, that when you and I were born into this world, we were not born spiritually neutral. We were born rebels. We were hostiles and not friendlies who had no desire to submit to God and have fellowship with him. To be dead in trespasses and sins means we've got no relationship with God. It means we don't want a relationship with God. And number three, spiritually dead means we are completely unable to change our relationship with God. There have been two times in my life when I have been in the room when somebody died. And it's a sobering moment as you watch them, their chest slowly rise and fall with every breath until it finally rises no more. You know what I noticed about the dead? Is that they can't do anything for themselves. They don't dress themselves for their funeral. They don't put themselves in their casket. I know it seems obvious, but dead people can't do anything to change their present condition. And because we were born into this world spiritually dead, there was nothing we could do to reverse our fallen spiritual nature. So that's our condition. But now look at our course. Look at what Paul says. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And as the spiritually dead, we were under the influence of two things. Number one, Paul says, we were under the influence of the course of this world. And number two, we were under the influence of the prince of the power of the air. Simply put, the course of this world means we were being influenced by the current godless human culture, a culture that feeds and encourages our rebellion. And the prince of the power of the air, the one who is energizing the sons of disobedience, is none other than Satan himself. Satan, the enemy of God, was actively influencing and energizing us to openly rebel against our God. Now, you might be thinking, Mark, wait a minute. Satan? I was not a Satan worshiper, Mark, before I came to Christ. I was not bowing down to him. How can you say, Mark, that we were under his control? Well, we might answer that question by asking another. How does Satan control people? Does he appear before them and say, I am Satan, bow down and worship me? No, he's much more clever than that. Instead, Satan, the father of lies, comes to us and says these words, Hey, why don't you be God? Why don't you be in control. Is that not what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden? When Eve said to Satan that if they disobeyed God's law, they would surely die. And when she told him that, he responded to them, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. You will be God. And that terrible lie that he spoke to them in the garden took root in their hearts and soon they began to wonder if God was really good to them. And they began to wonder if life might be better without him in the picture. And instead of remembering God's love and kindness towards them, they believed the lie of the devil, took the forbidden fruit, ate it, and in trying to seize autonomy from God, they subjected themselves to the dominion and influence of Satan. About 10 years ago, I was at my brother's house, and it was Thanksgiving, and Mike and I were playing Xbox together, as grown men do. (laughs) And my three-year-old nephew, Hawken, saw us playing a game, and he wanted to play too. And there's nothing more annoying than a three-year-old interrupting the fun of a 26- and 31-year-old 
And we kept pushing him off, but he kept asking. So Mike came up with a brilliant idea. He took one of the Xbox controllers and he took the batteries out of the controller and handed the controller to his son, Hawken. And Hawken sat in front of the TV, mashing buttons, thinking he was controlling the game, while quietly my brother Mike stood behind him with the controller that had batteries. And he was actually playing the game. In a sense, this is how Satan influences and energizes unbelievers. He hands them a controller with no batteries. He feeds us a lie that is so seductive. Why don't you be God? But in the end, we're doing exactly what he wants. And like the Pied Piper, Satan plays the tune that the spiritually dead love to hear. So we've seen our past condition dead in sins. We've seen our course under the influence of this world and of Satan. But now let's look at our past conduct. In verse 3, he says, We once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. What flows out of the life of the spiritually dead? The answer is this, sinful words, deeds, and thoughts. The Bible teaches that whatever is in your heart always works its way up to the surface of your life. Jesus said in Mark 7, 20 through 23, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Paul describes these desires as the passions of our flesh. Now, I'm a man of very few passions. I'm actually not really that fun, to be honest. I like my family. I like to work. I like good food. And I like cleaning my house, okay? These were my only passions until recently when David and Anna Overly introduced me to their home espresso maker, their frothed milk, and their fancy syrups. And brothers and sisters, my life has been forever changed. Overnight, I turned into someone who was passionate about making espresso coffee at home. I sold my favorite leather chair so that I could purchase a six to eight-year-old espresso machine from Facebook Marketplace so that every day I could make Amanda and me both two espresso drinks. And of course, Amanda doesn't care that I'm obsessed because she gets two Cafe Cubano lattes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And if you've been around me recently, you've probably been pretty annoyed at how passionate I am about telling you about homemade espresso coffee. And what I'm passionate about shows up in my life. The Bible makes it clear that whatever we love will show up in our life. And our lives were marked by sin and rebellion. So what flowed out of us were deeds in keeping with rebellion, speech in keeping with rebellion, thoughts in keeping with rebellion. So we've seen our condition, our course, and our conduct, but now let's look finally at our condemnation. At the end of verse 3, Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The phrase children of wrath means that we were literally the objects of God's righteous, just, holy judgment. Because of our sinful rebellion, the only thing we deserved from God was his righteous judgment. The Apostle John wrote these words in Revelation 20. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was on, seated on it. From his presence the earth and sky fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We were by nature the children of wrath. So we were dead in sin, following Satan, living in the passions of our flesh, and headed straight for condemnation. And into this horrifying description of fallen humanity, Paul interjects perhaps the most precious words we could ever hear. In verse 4, he writes, But God, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Just when we thought our condition was utterly hopeless, God comes running to the rescue with his untold mercy, love, and grace. Paul says God is rich in mercy. What is mercy? Well, for most of my life, I thought mercy was God simply holding back judgment that I rightly deserve. So he's like, I want to really punish you right now, but I'm not going to do that, okay? And that's true. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, but there's more to mercy than meets the eye. Mercy is what the good Samaritan showed to the Jewish man in Jesus' parable who was robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the road. Everyone else passed by, didn't they? But the Samaritan kneels down, cleans and binds the man's wounds, sets him on his animal, brings him to an inn, and pays for his stay and for his recovery. And at the end of the story, Jesus asks the religious leader a question. He says, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And you know what the lawyer said? He said, I suppose the one to whom he showed mercy The one who showed mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God's tender compassion towards sinners that allows him to look beyond our faults and to see our deepest need and then meet that need through his son, Jesus Christ. And the beautiful thing is that God is not a pauper when it comes to mercy. Oh no, He's rich in mercy. The Greek word translated rich means to be plentifully supplied or to be abounding in mercy. Have you ever been at a restaurant and you're filling up your fountain drink at the fountain drink dispenser and you start and then midway through you check out, like you go somewhere to Nana land Or maybe somebody starts distracting you. And before you can realize it, you look down and you realize you should have pulled that cup away from the dispenser a long time ago, right? And as you pull away, but too late, what happens? That foam, that fizz starts bubbling up over the sides of the cup and it starts spilling all over your hands, all over the counter, all over the floor. Do you know what it means that God is rich in mercy? It means he has more mercy than the little cup of your life could ever handle. You might say, but Mark, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've said. You don't know what I've done and said to others or I've done to myself. And I would say to you, well, you don't know my God. For though your sins are many, his mercy is what? More. And God comes running to us with rich mercy. But he's also got great love. 
And we know God's great love is clearly displayed in how he sent his son to die for our sins. In this is love, John writes. In this the love was, of God was manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath for our sins. Paul writes in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What more does God have to do to prove his love for us sinners? He gave his only son as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And as Jesus' righteous blood flowed from the cross, the divine wrath of God for our sins was satisfied. God is rich in mercy. He's got great love. And finally, he has unmeasured grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor working towards us sinners as he does for us what we could never do for ourselves. God made us alive. What does that mean? I mean, simply put, God has restored us back to fellowship with him. If to be spiritually dead means that you do not have or do not want a relationship with God, then to be spiritually alive means that you possess and treasure a relationship with him. And it's something that God has won for you because what Jesus did for you on the cross, he died for your sins and then he rose again. God made us alive, but there's more. Because of God's grace, we not only share in new spiritual life, in resurrection life, because of God's grace, we not only share in Christ's life, we also share in his victory over his enemies. Look at verse 6, it says this, God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, what in the world does it mean that God raised us up and then seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? I mean, When I'm looking at you right now, it looks like you are all here right now, seated in the lowly places at Lebanon Baptist Church. So how can you be, Paul says, in heavenly places, seated with Jesus? How do we explain that? Well, we know for sure that there literally will be one day when we stand with him in glory. There will come a day when we will be gathered around his throne and Jesus will reign in complete victory for all of eternity. It's gonna happen. And Paul is so sure that it's going to happen that he speaks of that beautiful moment as if it is already as good as done. Our lives, brothers and sisters, are so bound up in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that Paul can confidently say, you are already seated with him in victory. So presently, you're not only alive in Christ, but you are also victorious with him. Sin, this world... The devil has no more claim or authority over your life. 
For you have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But there's more. Grace has also radically transformed our future. God raised us to life and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means this, you were once a child of wrath, but now you can look forward to an eternity defined by the immeasurable grace of God. You were once a child, an object of his wrath, and now for all of eternity, you will be the object of his immeasurable grace and kindness that is given to us through his son, Jesus. Do you see why grace is so amazing? By grace, he brought us from spiritual death to everlasting life. By grace, he delivered us from the authority and influence of Satan and seated us in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. By grace, he takes us from being objects of his future wrath to being recipients of his future unending grace. God's grace is amazing because it has radically transformed our lives. But now I want to ask the question, for what purpose did God save us by grace? Why did God save us? What was God hoping to accomplish in saving us all by his grace? Look at verse 7 through 10. The reason is that grace magnifies the glory of God alone. That's the why. Verse seven, Paul says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Those two little verses, in ver- those two little words in verse 7 that, that start the sentence, so that these two small little words indicate the purpose for which God saved us by grace and that purpose is this God saved us so by grace so that for all of eternity he might glorify himself before our eyes he saved you not because you were somehow worthy or because he needed you He saved you so that you might see just how wonderful he is. Paul then gives the reason why God would do this. How is it that God for all of eternity can show off the riches of his grace and glory to us. How is it possible that God alone deserves all the glory? Well, that's where we get verse eight. Now in verse eight, we're so used to it. We're like, that's the verse we, that's one of the first verses we learn as Christians, right? For by grace, you've been saved through faith. But we must not forget that first little word. For. What is that word doing? It's explaining why God gets to show off. For by grace you have been saved through faith. God alone deserves the glory, brothers and sisters, because God alone has done the work of saving us. You and I can do nothing to save ourselves. In fact, in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. 
There is nothing we could have done to change our condition of spiritual death. For all of our goodness was actually shot through with badness. You and I could do nothing that merited God's salvation. It is a gift. That's why it's a gift. You don't work for gifts. You receive them. And it is this grace that ensures God alone gets the glory. You might be thinking, but Mark, don't I have a part to play in this? Don't I need to believe, right? Yes, you must receive God's gift of salvation through faith. Let me say that again. Yes, you must receive God's gift of salvation through faith. But brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to transform faith into a work. Faith is not a work. Faith is simply a response to what Jesus Christ alone has done for us. Many times we try to look at our faith as the thing that saves us. Well, if I just believe hard enough, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I just really, really believe and I'm, I'm believing hard enough to be saved. That's not faith in Christ. That's faith in your faith. And we must be careful to finish the Protestant dogma. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith is not a work. Faith is relying on the work that Jesus has done for you. It is receiving God's salvation and relying upon Jesus as your Savior. If faith was a work that we could boast about, then God's purpose of grace would be made of no effect. But as it is, God's grace saved us in such a way so that we could not boast. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The only thing we bring to the equation of salvation was the sin that made it necessary. And brothers and sisters, God has done all the work. And yes, it must be received by faith, but we must not make faith a work. The only one who gets to boast in heaven for all of eternity is the one who saved us. And just so it's clear, Paul in verse 10 adds these words. Look at it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there is a Greek word that always refers to God's divine creative power. The power that God used to call into existence a universe that did not exist and this power to fill that universe with life is the same power that God uses to awaken the spiritually dead. And he doesn't save us by good works, but he gives us new life that we are saved for good works. And he so radically transforms our life with his divine act of creation that nobody gets to boast. You don't even get to boast about the present works that God is doing through you. Did you see that? We're to walk in these good works, but they're not our idea. They're his idea. We walk in the works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so all of our existence, our past, our present, and future has been so transformed 
by God's grace in such a way that he alone deserves the glory. So if we were to summarize what we've learned this morning, we could say this, God's grace has radically transformed our lives in such a way that brings glory to God alone. That's why grace is so amazing. So how do we apply this to our hearts this morning? Well, right after concluding this 10-verse exposition of God's grace. Do you know what the next, next thing Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 2? He tells them that they must remember. The first command in the book of Ephesians is a command to remember what God saved us from and what he saved us to. Right after verse 10, he says, therefore, remember. You know, there's something good, brothers and sisters, when we take the time to pause and remember the amazing grace of God that is at work in our lives. There are several benefits to this. Number one, remembering how God's grace has transformed our lives fuels our present worship of God. Remembering how God has transformed our lives fuels our present worship of God. I can't tell you how many times this week, and really, This is like one of my favorite passages, if you haven't noticed yet. How many times over the course of this, of my life, this passage is the one that has reduced me to tears over and over again. Grace humbles us in such a way that it helps us see God and God alone in all of his unbridled, unmatched glory. And to remember that humbles you and then helps you see the one who saved you. So if you want to do something that is proper and good for your soul, then brothers and sisters, this week, starting today and throughout the rest of your life, Meditate continuously on the amazing grace of God. Number two, remembering how grace has transformed and secured our future gives us hope that grace will be there for us as we navigate our present temptations and trials. Knowing that we have a future secured in God's immeasurable grace gives us hope that grace is here now as we navigate temptations and trials. There are two things that would make a person doubt the grace of God in the present. The first is when we sin, right? Perhaps you've been tempted to doubt God's grace when you come to him and you confess that sin for the billionth time. Sure, God was gracious to you, but is he gracious to me now? The second thing that causes doubt is a present trial. And maybe your life has been turned upside down and you're slogging through trying to keep your head above water in the worst trial you've ever faced in your entire life. And you might be tempted to wonder, is God gracious to me? I know he was. But is he now? When I feel so alone? And the beauty of God's unending supply of future grace 
is that it ensures us that his present grace cannot and will not run dry. So you got sin in your life? God's grace is available to you. Are you going through the worst trial you've ever faced? God's grace is available to you. He has such a rich supply of grace that all of eternity will not be able to exhaust his indescribable grace. And it's available to us now, brothers and sisters. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. So rely upon the grace of God that does not run dry. To help you fight sin, live for God, endure suffering, walk in the good works that he has prepared for you, and lead you safely home. Glory to God, right? That's amazing. Finally, perhaps there's someone here who I've been speaking to believers trying to just remind us of why grace is so amazing, but you could be here this morning and maybe you have, you're not a believer and you have never put your faith in Christ's work of salvation alone. And perhaps that as you have been listening to us worship in front of you, as we speak and sing of God's glorious grace, Perhaps you're sitting here right now and God is calling you. And today, if you hear his voice, rise from the dead and receive Christ as your Savior. Turn from your sin and he will pour out his grace upon you. He will radically transform your life and you will be able to enjoy the glory, his glory for all of eternity. If you're sitting here in this room right now and you've never put your faith in Christ, you've never received or tasted of the grace that he freely offers, oh sinner, hear his voice. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone. And watch how God radically transforms your life as you bask in the beauty of his glorious grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning and it's good for us to remember Some of us have come from pretty rough backgrounds. Others of us were born into Christian environments, but one thing's for sure, we were all dead. And we didn't have a relationship with you, we didn't want a relationship with you, and we could not change our relationship with you. And so, Father, it's good to remember what you saved us from. It's good to remember, Father, that we now live in resurrection life. That we are seated with Christ in victory. That sin has no more dominion over us. That Satan has no power over us. Because as Jesus lives in victory, we also live in victory. Thank you for breaking the power of sin that had such a hold over our hearts. And thank you for doing it in such a way that we cannot boast. And if we are to boast, Father, we boast in the blood of your Son. If we are to brag, we are to brag in his resurrection because you alone deserve the glory And so, Father, I pray that as we have remembered 
why grace is so amazing that today you would feed your people, that your Holy Spirit, as Paul prayed, would open up the eyes of their hearts so that they might see all that you have done for them. And that we, like the rest of the redeemed, like the angels in heaven, might join in the chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. Father, help us to remember. Help us as we go through our present life, as we face trials and temptations, many dangers, toils, and snares. Help us to remember that the grace that changed our past and secured our future is with us now in the present. And Lord, I pray that your people today would leave walking in the good works that you have won for them. Lord, I pray that if there is one here who has never received your son Jesus by faith, they have not put their faith in his death for their sins, his resurrection from this grave and his ascension into heaven. Lord, if they have not put their faith in Jesus, your son, today, God, open the eyes of the blind. Open up their ears and may they hear your voice and respond to you in faith. God, we give you all of the glory. We love you so much. And we thank you that you have loved us. Now may you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.